Hello, grace and peace. We're taking Anarchy to Church here on the Anarchist Bible Study. I'm Josh, a.k.a. Iowan Cap. And I'm Jeff Park, a.k.a. the bearded catechumen of Benjamin Keach. Ooh, I like that one. That was a good one. Yeah. Oh, Benjamin yeah. Keach. And we're going to very, and, and after you, you mentioning Benjamin Keach, what we're going to do is move on and not explain him at all. Okay, excellent. <laughs> I love it. Google him. <laughs> <laughs> so you can you can pause this and and uh, go ahead and and uh, Google Keach Catechism. You're welcome. Uh so so welcome back after I spent, having spent a lovely three hours. Welcome back to the podcast slash uh, slash <laughs> slash YouTube video. Uh, yep. <laughs> 25 and a half episode 25 and a half we're bonusing up uh and we're hoping to put out more bonuses uh just because we've we've fallen into a rhythm of consistent uh consistently recording two episodes at a time and so that gives us a little bit of free time and so uh we'll probably be covering more topical things on these bonus episodes um maybe eventually we'll do some kind of a series we've, we've got a few ideas of of bonus series as we might go through uh, but this week we're going to take one of the other one of the subjects that was uh, gnawing at my brain while we were in in a break, um, and I'm going to first start. I'm going to start by shouting out uh, our friends at the podcast Revived Thoughts or Revived Studios. They're calling themselves now because they've got quite the podcast network going on over there. Um, but revived thoughts in specific that their podcast, uh, is, uh, basically they've been doing, um, what they do is they, they take old sermons and they have someone read them and, but before and after they talk about historically when, when these things happen, I have learned so much about Jay Gresham Machen from listening to their podcast, which I, I love. And, uh, um, Recently, they had a really cool conversation on the subject of preaching hell, which I thought was just solid. So, uh, and 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 also, I'm I'm shouting them out not just randomly, but because um, they their podcasts of of Spurgeon sermons is something of what uh, sparked this train of thought that we're going to talk about tonight. So, um, yeah, go check out Revive Studios. Follow Revived Thoughts. Uh, at Revive Thoughts on Twitter, um, they're they're just very good. Um, plus, they host uh, semi regular, cool historical um, trivia night things, and uh, um, you know J- Jeff Park which, almost won one, which which have which have you know not infallible outcomes. That that's that's what we can say about there. No. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying, well, you know what? He, he he gave it a good run, and uh, you weren't as good as the uh, the girl whose claim to fame is chasing squirrels <laughs> and uh, eating pineapple pizza, or not eating pineapple pizza. Uh, you know. Right. No, no disrespect, honestly. To, I've, I've listened to some of, uh, especially the, the episodes of Tulips and Honey I've, I've listened to, uh, mostly have to do with our friend Patrick. Um, from Cave to the Cross, apologetics. He his his episodes, uh, but she does a pretty fun show over there. Um, and apparently, yeah. she knows more about church history than Jeff does. It's a fluke. I'll prove it. 
<laughs> All right, but seriously, uh, the subject, <laughs> the subject of the night. Um, see, it started with this. Basically, I've been I I'm part of the evangelical church, broadly speaking, and uh, not only am I part of it, I think it's a label worth defending. Um, although I am somewhat wavering on that as of recent, uh, but I was, I happened to be thinking about this subject of the evangelical church. And I started seeing some things going on in the conservative world that led me to, um, see some kind of parallel things going on in the, I would say conservative political world. Uh, and then there, I connected it to something that we've seen going on in the liberty and libertarian world. And, and I was trying to figure out how to put this. And then I listened to the revived studios, uh, the revived thoughts episode on Spurgeon talking about what he called the downgrade and what was called the downgrade controversy. Um, and I, I started thinking in terms of downgrade and I think there is something there now. Um, we'll talk, let's talk a little bit first about what was the downgrade as Spurgeon defined it? Well, it was, it was defined in his, uh, he had a, uh, a magazine, sort of a theological magazine sort of thing that he, he put out, um, called the sword and the trowel. I believe that's the name of it, right? Was that right? Uh, I believe just the sword and trowel. No, the sword and trowel. Okay. Uh, and yeah. he, a friend of his was actually the one who wrote the series of articles that sparked this. And he's the one who coined the downgrade. Now, downgrade, of course, we think in terms of downgrading in the sense of downgrading your house. Um, but what they're, the way they're using it is probably more like what we would call a slippery slope. That there is a, it starts with a slight downhill, and then they see themselves going further than they expected to go. Um, because by compromising in one area, uh, they see themselves rolling in far many many others now they were speaking as baptists in england and um that the things that they saw the baptists compromising on uh would be what they called calvinistic doctrine and puritan uh okay shoot i lost the word uh puritan devotion I believe. Piety, or devotion? piety 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 um now that might be surprising uh to many people for whom uh for whom Puritan means uh, highly moralistic and controlling. And for those whom think of Baptist as being highly Arminian, you might think of both of those sides of being like, wait a minute, Baptists are always Puritan because they're always moralistic and controlling. And uh, Baptists are never Calvinistic. Why would they have ever been Calvinistic? <laughs> so, so you need to, so first of all, um, the Baptist movement is largely a Puritan the, in England was largely a Puritan movement. Uh, contrary to many Baptists who want to be Anabaptists and many reformed people who want us to be Anabaptists, Baptist history actually comes from the English Puritan reformation. Um, uh, by the way, being in a technically Anabaptist church, um, I, the Anabaptists are some of some of the best people to tell you exactly how much not out of the Anabaptist tradition the Baptists come. <laughs> Absolutely, but because there there is something of like some 
I don't I don't see uh, I think it's a knee jerk reaction on many reform. They want to try and connect us to the Anabaptists as kind of a a thumb in the eye to say, you know, you're not really why why would you want to be you know, so you're not really reformed. And and I would say, okay, maybe call us not really reformed. I don't care. But we do have our historical background from the reformed of England, the Puritan specifically the Puritan reformed. And okay, so maybe we need to define first. So, so that, sorry. <laughs> so we do undoubtedly come from the English Puritans. Um, there was a general and an, and a particular Baptist. The general Baptist would be more Arminian, although not really because Ar Arminianism is actually something far more technical than just not Calvinist. Um, but they were general there. It would come from, the general atonement, believing that Christ died for general people, whereas the Calvinistic side was the particular Baptist, they believed that Christ died for a particular people. And most Baptists were on the particular side. Because honestly, most Puritans were on the particular side. And the general Baptists um, did, in many ways, get their general theology from when they, uh, some of them left... England and spent some time among the Anabaptists and some of them actually did end up leaving and joining the Anabaptist tradition. Um, but the ones who came back while they did learn a bit from the Anabaptists did very much come from the Puritan reformation of England. And, and yet I would say that the particular Baptists had the larger following, uh, initially. And, um, uh, you've got like the catechism, the Keech, what's called the Keech Catechism, even though it probably wasn't written by Benjamin Keech. Um, uh, then you've got the 1689 London Baptist Confession, um, and but before that, 1644, um, and and you've got these London Baptist Confessions that were written in 1644 and 1689 to um, define them, and they they come out defining themselves largely as Puritans as reformed as calvinists now again are they really reformed because they don't baptize babies i don't care uh but but that is undoubtedly where they find their lineage and so along the way uh spurgeon is seeing them uh leave some of their calvinistic doctrine and by which we don't mean necessarily predestination uh there is so much more to calvin than predestination and there's so much more to the Calvinist wing of the Reformation than just we we believe in predestination. In fact, we talk a bit about this if you want to go back to our first episode, which if you're new to our podcast, we do recommend because we, we, we very much lay out what our podcast is about if you go back to our first episode. Um, but we talk a, a bit about that, about how, yes, uh, as a result of our Calvinist beliefs, and which more has to do with how we view the Bible and how we read the Bible, and seek to, to believe it literally, by which we mean in the way it's intended to be read, we do come to this conclusion of predestination, but it's more of an outcome than a defining factor if you really get down to what Calvinism is. And, um, and Spurgeon and his friend were seeing this abandoning of Calvinistic doctrine and, and very closely associated with it was a abandoning of the high priority of scripture, the high authority of scripture, um, which just goes to show that in every 
generation, there has to be a battle over the Bible. It's going to happen event uh, constantly. We, we need to constantly be going back to emphasizing the authority and, uh, and sufficiency and sufficiency of the and scripture. It will, it will often be the yeah. sufficiency of scripture. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. And, yeah, and, sorry, go ahead. and on the Puritan piety part, this is again, we, we need to define Puritan. When we hear Puritan, most of us think the scarlet letter. The problem with that is uh, Nathaniel, Nathaniel Hawthorne is the worst theologian of all time. Can we? Nathaniel Hawthorne <laughs> had an ax to grind. Yeah. Like we read that as if it was a document defining like Puritan life. Nathaniel Hawthorne had an ax to grind with the Puritans. We should all keep that in mind while reading it. It doesn't mean that he is getting it all entirely wrong. There are things about the Puritans, uh, Puritan society that even people who respect their piety might have problems with. Um, you know, especially someone calling themselves an anarchist Bible study. But but by and large, the Puritans, what, what they wanted to purify primarily was the worship. They wanted to purify the worship of the Anglican Church because they looked at the... the you need, okay, so the Anglican Reformation was a compromise reformation. They were doing what they could, uh, and the person who was, uh, in, who was responsible... Um, interestingly enough, the person responsible for creating the Book of Common Prayer, which defined uh, Anglican prayer, uh, worship life, was himself a Calvinist and was probably very sympathetic with the Puritans' theology. And largely what the Puritans were frustrated with was that the Reformation that had begun with him and that he intended to happen had not continued. The Book of Common Prayer was not meant to be uh, the end-all be-all of worship in in England, it was meant to be a stopgap. That uh, at the time, all of the preachers and the priests of England, um, because they had, they had just become Reformed, they had just become Protestant, did not know how to have a Protestant worship. And they did not know how to preach Protestant sermons. And so they, he wrote not just a book of common prayer, but also a bunch of homilies for them to read. Um, but the goal was for them to get off of the homilies and to get off of this Anglican, this book, and to continue to purify the church according to the word of God, to purify the worship of the church according to the word of God. And that is what the Puritans were looking to purify. With that, of course, comes morality. Now, the morality that the Puritans wanted to wanted society to follow was biblical morality. Like it was it was biblical morality. Now, did they go too far in a few places? I think you can make a case uh, for, for the overdoing of the simplicity of dress, overdoing of the, uh, for instance, well, Sabbath Chris, laws, Christmas. And yes. OK. Banning, and banning yeah. Christmas. And yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I, I could argue that some of them, are, they, they went too far. However, um, it, <laughs> by and large, their, 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 their desire was good. And in fact, what's interesting is the same uh, principle of trying to find plain dress and trying to have Christians defined by plain dress. You can find that in almost every monastic movement in history. So get off your high horse, Catholics. Um, but, <laughs> but... 
but this is what they were trying to do is the Puritans now now but when he talks about Puritan piety, Puritan devotion, a lot of times Puritans are pictured as killjoys, or as um, one of our scholars, uh, Puritans uh, once said, um, Puritanism is the fear that someone somewhere is having a good time. Uh, it's, that's that's a libertarian author who wrote that. And that's the idea that people have of Puritans. I mean, it's far from accurate. Far from accurate. Um, the only sermon anyone's ever read on Jonathan Edwards is Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Uh, and, and so we, we they start thinking, this is every ser- Puritan sermon, is threatening everyone with the wrath of God. Um, now, on the one hand, I don't want to swing so far as to say he never talked about that. Um, and I also certainly don't want to say he was wrong to say that. Um, like I said, Revive Thoughts, their recent podcast on that subject, was very good. Very good. And it honestly pushed me to rethink the way I defend Jonathan Edwards. Uh, because I, I would sometimes say, like, oh, most of his preaching wasn't on that. But who cares if it was? When the Bible speaks so much about the wrath of God, when the wrath of God is so serious, what should I what should I dispassionately talk about it? Like, well, you know, there is a hell and there is wrath of God. No, I should speak about it passionately because it's a serious I, serious thing. So our, I'm, I'm not going to ride that too far. Go listen to their podcast. They, they said way more than I can. Um, but, but, it, but, but, but even so, if you read all of his writings, you find far more than just threatening with hell. You find more than that. You find the, a constant theme of meditating on the beauty of Christ and the beauty of God. Like so much of, of, uh, the Puritan writings was about not just about the wrath of God, but it was about the glory of God. In fact, you can't understand the wrath of God apart from the seriousness of the glory of God, like this, this, the, the, the beauty of God's glory and, um, the desire to see the beauty of God's glory and of his holiness and meditating on the, 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 the character and attributes of God and, 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 and you have to, like, honestly, you have to read John Owen, one of the great Puritans, or Jonathan Edwards, another one of great Puritans. Read these great Puritans' writings and then see the way it just oozes with love and reverence for God. And and he was seeing some of that. That's what he mean, what, what Spurgeon meant by the losing the Puritan piety. And honestly, I think the church could do with a more, a bit more Puritan piety. Like one thing that I love about it is you read their theology and their commentary texts and they're never dry. They're always very astute and wise and biblical, aggressively biblical, but more than just like, it's like, it's like a commentary plus a devotional all wrapped into one. Like they'll, they'll, uh, John Owen will spend three pages cutting apart a single verse in the book of Hebrews. And then he will spend the next six pages on the, the applications of it and on the, 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 the doctrine of it and the way it shows us the glory of Christ and God. Like it's, it's amazing. And, and we could do with a bit more of that kind of both, um, doctrinal desire for doctrinal purity and, love and reverence for the God for whom we are speaking about whom we are speaking in doctrine. And Spurgeon saw this all as a downgrade. Now, I, 
in 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 the articles he, he talks about how it happened first with the Presbyterians, um, which no one would ever accuse the Presbyterians of leaving predestination behind. Like they even even the liberals will give uh, pay lip service to predestination. Um, who the heck knows what they think it actually accomplishes? But uh, they're, they're, I mean, a lot of the liberals are functional universalists. So so yeah. I guess predestination is is pretty easy. Oh, you're human. Cool. <laughs> but but he points out how the first step for the Presbyterians was a uh, was an academic schism. An academicism, a treating scripture as a merely an academic uh, curiosity, which eventually leads to a lack of faith in it, which eventually leads to uh, a disregarding of certain key doctrines like the atonement, substitutionary atonement, uh, the authority and sufficiency of scripture, and especially a, a mixing in of what, he, of what uh, Spurgeon calls natural theology. Of wanting to to make uh, theological conclusions just based on looking at nature and and a heavy dose of Darwinism at that time was was starting to creep in, which you know none of that is true today. We we don't see any of that in the modern evangelical world. No, I mean like this is this was so crazy. It's like this is exact exactly our complaint about the social justice movement. To, to, the, sure. to the modern evangelicals. Like, the problem is that this is social psychology uh, from naturalistic philosophers, and then we're just letting it come in and we're trying to plug it into Scripture as if it belongs there. And, and it just doesn't fit. Their definition of justice does not fit what the Bible speaks of when it speaks of justice and their idea of egalitarianism does not fit with what the Bible calls fairness and rights and, and, and it's and, and really this is like the first step and we can say this is not the first step of the downgrade but it is certainly the modern uh, one of the modern results of it um, but but really what sparked this thought on the downgrade is for me was, was not just the justice thing. It was the fact that the question of modesty, whether or not women should dress modestly, was a debatable topic within evangelical circles. It was okay when I saw that the liberals were against it. Uh, it's when the the evangelicals started doing it. In fact, I tweeted at one point, if someone knows Matthew West, uh, tell him to put his video back up. They were never going to be happy with it. Don't give in to the mob. Uh, don't give don't give in to the mob. You're only giving that that's 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 red meat. That's what's going to keep the mob going. Um, but but that what happened was. Let me get some fuller fuller background. Uh, Matthew West wrote a silly song called "Modest Is Hottest." Anyone who's heard this song or watched the video knows he was his tongue was so far up his cheek that he was he was just telling making a silly video with his family uh actually uh on cooper stuff cooper uh john cooper's podcast cooper stuff he and uh Alyssa childers uh go over this and honestly they cover the subject very well um uh so if you want to go watch that that that's covers it very well 
But basically, the, the, the long and short of it is they're going after him for being like, for, for treating his, telling his daughters they need to wear a turtleneck and, and dress like Amish people. Except if you watch the music video, they're wearing shorts and t-shirts. Clearly, <laughs> he's telling it, he's being facetious. And yet, he is telling a truth at the heart of it, that he does want them to not just like wear the revealing clothes of, of our, uh, that everyone's wearing nowadays. And, uh, and that's what people were going after is saying that this is you know, like, that this is something, a problem. And we could go into a whole subject on modesty. That's not the point of this. Uh, the point is the fact that it is controversial among evangelicals to talk about modesty period shows that the downgrade is real. There has been a real downgrade um, that started in doctrine and has moved into morality, which is the same exact thing that we saw that Spurgeon saw in his day. And um, what do you think the cause of that is, uh, Jeff? I, I mean, I think I think as always, the idea is that. It's, it starts from the good motive of wanting to reach people with the gospel, right? So, so that, and, and, and so you use, you use the idea that, um, you know, you'll become all things to all men so that by all means you might save some. Um, and the most misinterpreted verse in all of <laughs> the Bible. Oh, well, maybe not the, but one of it, 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 it it's it's probably in the top 10 um, <laughs> unfortunately it has a lot of company um uh but uh, but uh yeah so um and 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 but but i want to recognize that that that's so starting from a good place like that motivation is a good motivation so we should because we do believe in hell we should look at the inexorable logic of Romans 10 yeah. that 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 um, that ultimately um, you need you need preachers you need proclaimers of the gospel or else or else there is no hope uh, of, of salvation from damnation and and so then the idea then that, um, anything that might become a barrier to the hearing yeah. of gospel, um, we want to uh, we want to strip out it, out of the way, so that if there are any um, doctrines that are unnecessarily would be how it would start, stumbling <laughs> blocks, or or any uh, points of morality that are more cultural than biblically based then we want to uh, strip those out of the way and, 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 and give a, a pure and, and streamlined gospel message and be gospel-centered and, and, okay? And all that is well and good. But there's this saying about babies and bathwater. <laughs> um, and, and the problem is that um, unlike babies and bathwater, um, when you're tossing out, when you're tossing out the bathwater and you get too excited about it, it can be hard to tell where the baby starts. 
<laughs> um, and um, and and so and especially if in the zeal for streamlined evangelism, um, the question, wait, are we sure this is cultural, becomes becomes insensitive. Yeah. So, so I don't mind having these conversations. We should have like so. So you and I, for instance, would recognize um, that a lot of what passes for for um, identifying of Christianity in North America is cultural. Yeah. Um, it, it, so, so we don't mind having that discussion. Um, but, but that question of, wait, are we sure this is cultural? And by the way, if it is cultural, we had this conversation, I think last week, um, yeah. if, if it is cultural, are we sure that that, that, that means it isn't still yeah. objectively good or bad? Episode 24. <laughs> um, yep. We did talk about that. Episode 24. That, oh, yeah. that was 24. Yep. Okay. Oh, right. Right. So this is going to be 25.5. Yes. Um, and, and, uh, and yeah, so, uh, so it would be, uh, an episode and a half ago, if yeah. you will. Um, so, <laughs> so, um, so yeah. And, um, because, because we talked about in, in episode 24 that, um, pretty early in that episode, as I recall that, that, uh, um, that, just because something's cultural doesn't mean that you can't make a moral judgment about it. Yeah. Absolutely. And you made the, you made the excellent point that, um, that if it were true, um, that, um, no culture could be judged any better than any other, um, in any way, um, then that, that very statement. So then of that statement, you ask, Okay, so would it be bad for a culture to say that there is a difference between cultures? And yeah. and now you have just proved that uh, um, that white North American culture is superior to all the other cultures yeah. because every other culture in the world, <laughs> every other culture in the world does believe <laughs> that there's a difference between cultures. Yeah, um, absolutely. And so so the uh, so so that syllogism is self-defeating. Um, yeah. Uh, but uh, but anyway, so. So we have to we have to be able to ask that question: Are we sure this is cultural? And if mm -hmm. even if we're sure this is cultural, <laughs> um, can we ask the question? Okay, now now that we've determined it's cultural, can we ask the question: Is it good or bad? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's cultural is is one step. The next step is right. is the does the culture need to be critiqued? Um, right. Or 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 is it adiaphora? You know, that's adiaphora uh, is is kind of the the uh, Greek term it's it's uh indifferent matters indifferent things that it's right. neither good nor bad like do you like uh do you like pepperoni pizza or sausage on pizza like it's indifferent there's no moral judgment between the two um i was gonna say do you like pineapple on your pizza or not but you know there is a moral judgment if you put pineapple judge on your pizza but uh <laughs> but you know like things like that like it's it's not like um 
it's it's you're, uh you're you're now causing an argument between me and my wife a week and a half from now oh and dear. i appreciate this i can book this argument all right come go ahead <laughs> but but it's it's true like though that um like okay so so i think you put your finger on one side of it You've all, I think you've got two sides that conspire against a solid biblical doctrine among evangelicals. There's always the, it's kind of the, the thing you find always. You've got the, the side of license and the side of legalism, right? Mm-hmm. Like when it, we're, we're defined more, morally speaking, you've either got um, hyper legalism, like it has to be every letter of the law and there's a possibility of even getting saved by the law by the keeping the law and you've got license don't follow any of the law just sin so that grace may abound you got the same thing when it comes to doctrine on the one hand you do have this this concept of uh well doctrine just divides and but it's true doctrine does divide but sometimes there needs to be divisions Sometimes you need to, there needs to be division. Sometimes you need to divide out the liars and kick them out. Like that's, that's really what Paul is saying in Acts 20 when he says that false teachers will rise up from the midst of you. You need to divide them out, mark them and kick them out. And, and, but then on the same time, like, I, I, like, like you were saying, like you want to affirm something like I do believe in, in the doctrine of election and predestination. But you know what I'm not going to talk about when I'm talking to an unbeliever? Election and predestination. Like, I'm not going right. to get into that. To the, right. the, I'm not going to, like, what am I going to do? Talk to this unbeliever and say, well, I hope that you're elect. And so I'm sharing the gospel with you on that case that you might be elect. No, I'm just going to share the gospel with them. Like, this, now, the doctrine of election also is sitting in the background while I'm sharing the gospel to them. Because I'm thinking, uh, I don't, for one thing, I don't want to deny the doctrine in the process of not talking about it, but also right. I'm, I'm thinking while I'm talking to them, I'm thinking, well, I am praying to the Lord, please let, please change their heart. Please cause them to, uh, hear and love the gospel, but I'm not going to go into these matters. Um, I well, think, I think and... really that's at the heart of what Paul means when he says, when I came to you, I, I chose to know only Christ and Christ crucified, which again, that's another one of those passages that gets brought up in, in favor of downgrading the doctrine, but that's not what he meant because obviously he didn't know just Christ and Christ crucified when he started talking to them in the first Corinthians. He started going into other matters. He was talking about the matter of evangelism, like the matter of evangelism and that it all comes down to. And then, and in the, in the process, he was criticizing them for starting to waver on the subject that is most central, which is Christ and Christ crucified. Um, but but like what Paul would say when he's evangelizing was very different from when he wrote them a letter later uh, and uh, particularly his cyclical letter that comes to be known as the book of Ephesians. There he front and centers election because he's not talking to unbelievers anymore. He's talking to a church full of saints and he wants them to understand you are here because of the sovereign grace of God. And so there's much reason to rejoice and worship this God because he chose you before the foundation of the world. Like the, the excuse of becoming all things to all people is 
it fails the minute you look at anything else in the New Testament. Like really, that's and that's ultimately the issue with the evangelical downgrade is it starts with a lowering of scripture practically. Not doctrinally, practically. I use this illustration all the time because it's, and, and I know I've used it on this show before. I just don't remember which episode. But I went to a, when, when I went to that Christian rock concert and the guy stands up and holds up his Bible and says, how many of you guys believe that this is the word of God? And everybody cheers. How many of you guys believe that this is true and inspired? And inerrant. And everybody cheers. He says, how many of you believe that this is relevant and able to change lives? Everyone cheers. And then he takes that Bible and he throws it on the, on the stand, the music stand in front of him. And he says, let me tell you a few stories. I swear to God, that's exactly how it happened. He throws the Bible on the stand and says, let me tell you some stories. And I'm like, what happened to this is the word of God and relevant <laughs> and able to change lives? If it's true, then open it up and tell me what it says. Like, he, and then he just goes on to talk about a bunch of stories, which largely come down to look how awesome I am. But, 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 but that's like, it doesn't matter what you say about the Bible. It doesn't matter that you he said all the right things about the Bible, but his actions showed something differently. And, and so the downgrade happens practically before it happens doctrinally. And, and, and that's, really the problem with evangelicalism is we've gotten so used to we will affirm in our statement of faith the inerrancy sufficiency and authority of scripture and we will preach sermons as much as i love the lord of the rings on, on themes from the lord of the rings movies and that that is not proper for a sermon like yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and <laughs> um and, and that's why, as much as we might joke uh, uh, about slowly transforming us into a, into a Middle Earth podcast, that's, that's not going to happen because we believe that yeah. the things that we're talking about are more important than that. Yeah. As important, of course, as Middle Earth is. Um, <laughs> but but actually, actually, Middle even, Earth. <laughs> of course, even that. Even that, I mean, one of the reasons one of the reasons that that we're we're able to exult in that particular piece of IP so much is that it is founded on a on a robustly Christian worldview. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, and and so it, it so it makes it um, so one of the one of the things that is that rings so true about middle earth is that because because it is based in a profoundly christian worldview um it it's going to it's going to resonate with the real world in some ways more than the gritty crime drama that's yeah. supposed to be super realistic yeah. um uh and um it it, it both um, both because it can draw your attention through fantasy to things that are abundantly true, but that you may have overlooked, um, uh, and and because it's it's fundamentally based in a in a uh, worldview that makes sense because 
uh, because it is how our world is also made. And and yeah. I'll, and here I'll just throw in the uh, the beautiful Chesterton quote that I found um, uh, when rereading Orthodoxy recently. Uh, he says uh, um, he says that in fairy tales. Um, in fairy tales, we fill the rivers with wine so that we can remember for one glorious moment that they're full of water. <laughs> and, and, so, um, uh, and so even that, even that, one of the reasons we can appreciate that is because it is uh, so profoundly based in, in, the, in the very things um, that we can also show you from scripture. But, but then, then, that so but we care about the scriptural content more so we're going to show it to you first yeah. from the scriptures and then if that resonate if there's a if there's a particularly resonant thing from middle earth that helps us make that point then we will <laughs> reinforce <Yeah>. the point <laughs> with an analogy with not yeah not the other way around and that and and that's so so often what i think people miss it, and it's it's the problem of the illustration is meant to illustrate the text so it's supposed mm. to help you to understand the text but we get to a point where the illustrations become the point mm -hmm. um this this is what i was warned about in my charge when i was getting ordained and it's and it's a it's words that echo in my head um, when I was being ordained um, in that little church plant north of Sioux Falls, South Dakota, um, I don't want to dox anybody, but uh, I I was ordained by. I am um, also I am also north of Sioux Falls, South Dakota. could be it could be anywhere <laughs> up to the Arctic. Go ahead. Sure. My my <laughs> my uh, pastor. Um, who was my mentor and who I still often ask WWRD, what would Ryan do when I'm, I'm trying to figure out things? Uh, he charged me uh, using the words of second Corinthians and he uh, brought up an illustration that I had used, which was kind of a potent illustration. He, he brought up a few illustrations that I'd used that were really remarkable, uh, good illustrations and he said, these are very good and show your ability to connect. Uh, and it's a good, it's good. However, be careful that you never become so caught up in your own wit and wisdom and creativity that you stop. Uh, I want to try, I'm trying to figure out, I'm trying to remember how he said it, that you that you fail to allow the simple beauty of the word itself to do its work. Hmm. And, and I, that, that, uh, the words themselves, uh, don't stick with that idea of like, don't get so high on your own creativity and your own wit. Don't, don't value your own words so much that you fail to centerpiece the word. And I think that's a big thing that happens is that people get so caught up in their own ideas. Um, you'll hear expositions, expositions, except they, they're really just a person's uh, 
getting caught up in their own ability to pull apart the passage. And it's not about the passage itself at, at some point. It's about you showing off your own intelligence or your own illustrations or your own wit or your own ability to make a three point, uh, three point sermon all starting with the letter C or something like that. Like we, we start to become, we, we start to, to center our ideas about the text instead of the text itself. And, um, and that's the first step on the downgrade. The first step is taking a step away from the word. And, and it might still look like an exposition at that point. It might still look like we're expositing the text, but your own ideas for the text have replaced it. And, and people will, will do these sermons and think they're not preaching a topical sermon. They'll think they're, mm-hmm. they're doing expository preaching. That's why there's certain definitions of expository preaching that I've become very uncomfortable with. Um, Honestly, expository preaching let's should be the word of God speaking through the pastor. It's that that's that's expository preaching. When I open the text and I I don't I don't tell them that this is what the word means as if I have authority to tell them. I let the word of God speak through me and I let it define my language. I let it define my illustrations. I only illustrate in order to help the passage to become clearer. And I leave my illustration and get back to the text as soon as possible. I, I, I will turn a phrase and use a witty witticism in order to help people understand the text, but I'm going to leave my wit as quick as I can. And I'm going to get back to the text. The whole point is if at the end of the sermon, they say, good job, Josh, I have failed. I have succeeded if they walk away and say, what a good word. That the, the word of God is good. And the word of God really got to me this week. The word of God spoke to me. Then I have failed. If I can get a, out of the way, it's, a, it's a, a phrase that pastors use all the time. Uh, and if we believed it as much as we say it, the church would be better off for it. Uh, if I can get out of the way and let the word speak. Like if we, if we believed it as much as we say it, the church would be better off. If we, Lord, help me to get out of the way and let you speak. Uh, the, the problem is we, we, anytime uh, a sentence becomes a mantra, it becomes easy to just state without meaning. Lord, let me get out of the way so you can speak. Uh, it's an easy enough to say simple little phrase. Um, but, but it's, it's T it should change. It changes everything about your your sermon preparation. Changes everything about the way you study the text, and, and and that's another thing. Like what what is what is the problem that we have with pastors plagiarizing sermons? The problem isn't that I believe IP matters in the realm of of sermon prep. The what matters is a guy is preaching something he has not himself sat with. He's preaching someone else's study. It's not like I expect Ed Litton to go into his study and come out of it with a different insight on this passage than J.D. Greer. If it's the same word we're reading, it makes sense that we would all come to the same conclusions. But I want you to discover it. I want you to discover it. I want you to spend some... Maybe maybe use J.D. Greer's sermon. Maybe you listen to his whole series and, and, and come to... And use that to study the text, but then come out of it... it, it if it sounds exactly what he said, then it never made its way through your brain. 
And that means it certainly never made its way through your heart. Like, the problem with plagiarizing sermons is you are lying. The words that you're saying may be true. In this case, they weren't. Uh, but that's a whole other issue. But the words might be true, but you are lying and saying it because you are making it seem like you believe it. But you haven't sat with the text long enough to believe it. We need to start with the text. The, the, and, and this is where, in the downgrade that Spurgeon described, it started with the preachers every time. Mm -hmm. It always starts with the preachers. Every downgrade starts with the pastors. And so if we're going to look at the evangelical church and see the failure of it morally, doctrinally, uh, and, and the whole lot, it starts with the preachers who call themselves evangelical preachers. It starts with the fact that they are not sitting with the word and they are not sitting with the word in such a way that they want to understand it and make it understood and proclaim the, the truth of the scripture having filtered it first through their own brain and heart and, and, and have had themselves been changed by it. And that's ultimately the problem. That's ultimately the problem right. is that every right. is, is, is this, this temptation to pride that comes with, with the pastor, the pastorate. It's this temptation to pride and I feel it. I get it. I want to be the expert that everyone looks to. I want to be the one that everyone talks about how smart he is, how creative he is, how good of a preacher he is, how good of an illustrator he is, how, oh man, he's so good at turning a phrase. I want those adulades. I, I, I want that, those adulades. I want that adulation. It's, it's in the middle of adulation, whatever. Uh, I want to be praised for all of this. I want that. I want to be that guy. And, and so it becomes so tempting for me to use that one sermon I get every couple months, especially because, you know, I'm not the lead pastor. I want to I take advantage of every sermon, and I want them to see how good I am. And then I fail my congregation. Right. And, and, and it's this pride of pastors and this, failure of pastors to properly center the word in their ministry. I think that's another big problem. How does a guy like Ed Litton end up plagiarizing sermons? It's because his job description is probably six miles long. He's allowed his job description to become six miles long. Maybe it's his fault. Maybe it's his church's fault. Well, he and it started from, it started from the way you hire an Ed Litton. You form a search committee. You write up a job description. You have people send in resumes. Where is that in the scriptures? Yeah. You're supposed to know how this guy's kids behave. Yeah. You're not going to get that from his resume. Yeah. You're you're supposed to know if he's pugilistic. Yep. You're supposed to know how he is with money. <laughs> you're. You're, you're supposed to know if he's greedy or if he's hospitable. You can't know any of those things. From a resume. So, so, so the, the, the search for an Ed Litton 
is going to get you an Ed Litton. It's going to get you if you if you look for a CEO, you're not going to find you're 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 not going to find a bunion, my friend. <laughs> if, if um you're and and so and you're which is which is not to say that having skills that might be valuable in other places it, it, it um it's it's not to say that that having gone to the right seminar i mean I would look at where someone went to seminary. <laughs> um, you know, um, but uh, but that is to say that the scriptures actually give us the qualifications of an elder. Yes. Yeah. And it doesn't say went to the right seminaries. And it doesn't even of... say learn from the right people. It doesn't even say. <laughs> Sorry. And I'll. I'll... No. And and one of the but to your point, it, we're supposed to judge a person who manages their household well, and the first thing we look at is did they spend over a hundred thousand dollars of debt? Did they put get, put themselves into over a hundred thousand dollars of debt to go to seminary in order to get this job? Is that and when when they're learning things? I'm sorry, I've been to seminary. I can say this with authority. They could have learned that in a church setting. They could have learned that in a, uh, in in an, an apprenticeship model sort of thing, and, and so honestly, maybe going to seminary is proof that they don't manage their finances well. And and I say this yeah. to someone who's gone to who's gone to seminary, and is bearing the debt for it, but also like yeah. the qualifications of a paid elder is that he has ruled well as an elder. Right. I was never an elder until I was a paid elder. Like mm -hmm. I look back on that and that is a problem. Mm -hmm. Like until I was a paid elder, I was never an elder. Mm -hmm. It seems like this is again, it's worldliness. It's worldliness. Let's call it what it is. The downgrade starts. It's, it's worldliness in the way we pick our ministers, like you're saying. And oh my goodness, I'm I'm so it's, it's, I'm so glad you're you're picking on this because that means I'm not the one who brought it up. But it's true. It's true. It's a worldliness. The way that we view the pastorate as a job. It's like we're saying, oh my goodness. And so many of the people who who read the book and and love that book, brothers were not professionals. Uh, it's like they're all saying brothers are not professionals but kind of, but kind of like, because this is a professional way of choosing, like of choosing elders. Like it's a professionalistic right. way. We are looking for job descriptions. We're looking for, for that, that are not biblical. They're not coming from the Bible. We are looking at, at qualifications. We are asking about education. We are asking about prior job experience. And, and like, where does the, you can't judge my character based on my resume. Like you can't. Well, and especially, and I, I'll, I'll say this so you don't have to, um, and, and save, save you, um, save you this, uh, this grief. And I, I won't, I won't apply it directly to save you even more grief. But, um, so, 
so you talk about work experience. So then, so then how do you get your work experience? Well, right. First, you're a youth intern. And then you get to be a youth pastor. And then you get to be a real pastor. Where did that come from? Where did that come from? I plead the and, fifth. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. That's yeah. So, so this this is this is Jeff Park <laughs> residing in Calgary, Alberta, not Josh Redacted residing in and redacted. <laughs> um, 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 so so um, send your hate mail to anarchistbiblestudy at gmail.com because Josh doesn't read that. Um, so, um, but but yeah, so we've 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 created a course a, a career course we've created a path to the corner office that that is so foreign from the from the entire tone and tenor of the scriptures where where first of all we're saying that we have this second class church member called a youth. It's a practice and, and, field. And, and, yeah, yeah. And so yeah, go ahead and make your mistakes with 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 these um uh uh with uh with these uh simulation Christians. Um and and we wonder why we lose them um, and why they become convinced that, that they're just getting simulation Christianity. But um, so, so we're, so we're first of all, marking out a, a uh, segment of the church. And then we have the gall to paint on the wall of the room that we shuffle them off to, to worship away from their parents, to, to paint, let no one despise your youth. When that's what this building is for. We put this room over here so we can despise their youth. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I, again, this is Jeff Park in Calgary, Alberta. <laughs> um, direct all hit mail this direction, but, but, that um, that to me is one of the most galling things we do in Christian life is um, so leaving aside the age segregation, which I would also argue for uh, argue against for 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 other reasons. Um, but um, but part of the reason we have done this is so that we can create a career path so that someone can show competency to be able to get the corner office. And which, itself runs counter to this entire idea of being a shepherd, of course, because shepherds don't get corner offices. 
Shepherds get to lie down with sheep. Yep. Um, yep. But it also, it, 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 it also just, it, it's, it's this, it's this compulsion we have to infuse every element that, that if we really care about this, then we're going to infuse it with worldliness because obviously worldliness is what works and the scriptures we don't fundamentally believe do uh sorry i'm gonna walk <laughs> i'm gonna tread lightly here <laughs> sorry and i know i know yeah i know I, i'm 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 not in, because in i uncomfortable... disagree with anything specifically that you said but because <laughs> i want to be careful not to yeah. uh, overstep my bounds because we are getting into my my job. Um, I am <laughs> yeah. I am a pastor I, of I youth, and I apologize. No, by, no, by the way, but no, I, no, no. But I was very clear when I applied for this job, and it was a dreaded question. I was so afraid that what what was going to happen when I got this question. They were going to ask me, and I knew it was going to happen. How long do you see yourself in this role? And is it a step toward a different role? And they did ask me the question. And to their credit, they were fine with my answer. Because I was honest with them. I said, I do not feel that God has called me to an associate pastor role. I feel that the, the gifts that God has given me and the 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 vision for ministry he's given me, I am called to be a, what, what I guess is now called a senior pastor was the lead pastor, whatever a pastor of preaching and teaching, you know, like it's, it's really more of what I would like to call it. Uh, someone who is leading elders as they lead the flock first among equals, that sort of thing. And to their credit, they said, that's fine. That's fine. We understand. And, um, and in many ways, I looked for jobs based on if I thought that they were, um, if they if they were looking for that sort of thing. Like part of the reason that thing that attracted me to the current job that I have is it was clear that they were looking for people who were looking for first time experience. Like it, it was clear that they were looking for people who, in fact, I was more qualified than I think what they were expecting um, from an applicant. Because I think they were kind of expecting just out of Bible college kids, you know. Um, but it was a dreaded question. Because the truth is, for the previous six months, I have been applying to lead pastor positions, to senior pastor positions. This is what the Lord had called me to. This is what, when, when people, and, and, and by which I don't mean an internal calling. I did it right. I checked with other people. Like, I, in fact... I did not feel an internal call. I was given an external call. Someone told me, hey, you should consider going into ministry. And like everyone who is actually called, I rejected it at first. <laughs> I refused it. I said I didn't want to do that. I'm like, no, that's not my plan. Um, and then they, but then it was persistent enough. Like enough people kept coming up to me and telling me that I said, all right, okay. And, um, what was I being called to? Like what I, I, 
I was not being called to be a youth pastor. I, I, I was not being called to be an associate pastor. My gifts, um, do not like, there's some people who are fine with following someone else's vision. And then I'm not cr criticizing that. I, I'm, I'm not even going to call them a sheep. I'm not going to call them a follower. I'm like, like I get that. There are people who are called to be the guy executing someone else's vision. We need more of those people in this world. But I'm not one of them. And so when I... But for the past six months, I've been looking for that position. I've been setting out resumes. I have been... And, and I've been very selective about where I sent out my resumes. I knew I didn't look good on paper. So I only sent resumes out to churches where I could make contact with someone, where I knew someone there, and I kept getting the same response. We want to see you get a little more experience. Two questions. How do I get that experience? Because those same people would probably, like many of the same people, would also say it is shameful the way we treat youth ministry. Like you said, that it is just a stepping stone on the way to the lead pastor position. But how else am I going to get there? How else does a lead pastor get to being a lead pastor? You have to step on the youth ministry. You have to treat it like a stepping point. It's not, it's, it's like, in fact, I've tried really hard to not do that. Because by saying, like, even as I know that I'm just trying to get experience so that I can get the job that I will eventually want, I am not treating them like a stepping point. I want, I am caring for these students. I am trying to get intimately involved in their lives. I am thinking of myself as a pastor of them. However, what other choice did I have? What other choice did I have but to, but to do this? And, and again, yeah. I'm not, I'm not, not outstepping my boundaries at this point because I, because my church did know that when I came in and they've been very supportive of it. Um, and, and, you know, I'm getting into my third, fourth year. And so I'm having some frank conversations with people about being like, Hey, I mean, you know, I'm not around forever. Like this is, this was a temporary thing and we're getting into third and fourth year. So it could, could happen. And, and some of them are saying are, are, are bristling at that, but you know, it's, we all knew, um, uh, but not bristling like because they they're they're mad they just i think we all come to love each other that's what happens when you're part of a church um uh no. but, but second thing <laughs> second thing does youth ministry really prepare me for a lead pastorate does it does it really does it are, they're completely different ministries like, I, I mean, I'm sorry, like, I, they are. Like, I don't deal with people who are, I, I don't deal directly with people. I'm dealing with people who have to go home and check with their parents. Like, there, there's a reality that I, tonight, okay, we record on Sundays. So I just got done giving a, 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 a talk, doing a message to my, and I could tell some people in the room were just not taking it seriously. And so uh, at the end, there was kind of, we did a time of prayer of having them go and pray. And then we gathered together and I just said, frankly, I can't make you care. I can't make you care about this. I, I pray that you'll take this seriously, but I, I can't make you care about this because I have very little relative influence compared to a lead pastor because they primarily are influenced by their parents. And I know that some of the kids in my room, I'm not getting support from the parents. Not like I'm getting contradictions from the parents i'm just not getting support from them they're not they're not backing me up they're not going home and and getting the same emphasis on the word and, and stuff that that 
I'm good. So I am already relating at a disadvantage to them. And also, I am not setting my setting the vision for the church. I get I have limited areas where I'm allowed to set vision within my ministry, but it cannot conflict with the lead pastor's vision, and it has to be at his bidding. I have to correct, check everything against him, and he has veto power. Uh, when the sickness uh, came through. I did not have authority to make calls. I had to follow the lead of the lead pastor and the uh, elected elders. I did not have any. I did not have any authority to say what we were doing as a youth ministry. So, am I really getting experience that's comparable to a lead pastor in this role? Like, like it's just again, it's just. And it'd be one thing if what you're really asking is, have I been tested and I've been found, uh, it's, and it's been, you know, that, that, that my character stood, I am still qualified for ministry after spending some time in ministry. Like, that'd be one thing. But the other question is, is, that, is it really best to test someone by placing them in a paid ministry position? Or should you have them be an unpaid elder first? Doing it under... like, In other words... It's a risk to the ministry by putting someone who's untested in it in order to get them per, uh, experience to get the job that they really want. And also, it's like, is it really... Is it really the same thing? Again, like, it just... Ultimately, what is the downgrade of the modern evangelical world? It, it's worldliness. It is worldliness. It's worldliness in downgrading our doctrine. It's worldliness on the other end of adding in doctrines that we're getting from the world, whether it's business model, Christianity Inc., which, honestly, I've heard the same people rail against Christianity Inc. that are following it to a T, but just not as much as someone else. Like, well, yeah, fish, fish don't know the swimming. It's true. And, and the question is, this is really what it comes down to. Are we willing to be ruthlessly biblical? And I mean that. I love that. I, I think that word is important. Ruthlessly biblical. Are we willing to cut down uh temples in order to worship at the true altar there are things that we're going to have if if we're going to look at the true new testament vision of the church we're going to have to look at things like the long held respected tradition of hiring a pastor as hiring a ceo that the, the the, the long-standing tradition of forming a search committee in order to find a pastor. The long-standing tradition of hiring someone out of seminary. <laughs> As if seminary qualified someone for ministry. Uh, the long hint, I mean, there's even questions that we have to ask about, like, there's sometimes where I'm like, the home church people seem to have a point. I don't see a lot of evidence for for. for building church buildings and for having building funds and, and collecting funds in order to, to do building projects. Like the, 
we need to have questions. We need to ask questions like this. If we're going to be ruthlessly biblical, we need to ask, why do we have so many committees and so few deacons? Why do we have, uh, why do we have so many elders that are unqualified to be elders? Why does the elder board look more like a board of directors than actual pastors? Or let's hear, let's, oh man, we've brought this up a couple times, but what do we make of the fact that elders and pastors seem interchangeable in the Bible? Right. It doesn't seem to be a functional difference. Um, what, what if... What if it was never supposed to be this professionalized process of finding people, sending them to seminary, and then having them hired like a like a like a VP in order to get their experience well, to work their way up the ladder? Yeah, and like in what in what other is it? Hey, you really love these people at this church and you really love God's word. So we think we should send you somewhere else. Yes. Like, oh. Okay. And I might be a little more up on seminary than you are it just um, uh, I, because because I'm for I, academic I feel, training. Sure. I but not feel, the way we do it. Right. Oh, you, right, right, right. And yes. And ideally, ideally, this would be um, a, a highly decentralized so that you can minister where you are. And it's, and it's the pastors in your town. I know that for me, living in a town with 1.4 million other people, makes that a little easier to say than 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 people who don't but although you're um, always in this country you're always within an hour of a seminary hour hour and a half you can and that's if we're, true and if a if a seminary is really willing to work with you online via online resources via night and weekend courses we could make it work well and yeah so <laughs> to draw a circle around fifty thousand christians uh might might take more space where I live than where you live. So yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure that would be an interesting, that would be, that would be interesting to know. Or, or um, maybe like we send our, maybe we send our, our pastors away to be trained at a seminary with the expectation that we'll pay for you. If you come back and serve us when you're done getting paid or getting, getting educated. Like, yeah. you know, like I think, but then I, yeah. I, the one, the one, um, uh, the one piece of advice that I always give people who are asking me um, where to go to undergrad or seminary or whatever um, is, have you checked out the church situation at each of these places? Because I think where you go to church while you're away, if you're going to go away, I think where you go to church while you're away is much more important. And than... it's going to speak volumes about the seminary. Yeah. If oh, yeah. No, 
if there's no solid, if they can't get a solid church in the same town as the seminary, not saying a lot of good things about the seminary. Then, then what are you doing? And and you know what? Um, one of my favorite seminary professors, um, I would never want to be a pastor in my church. And that's, mm. that ain't great, folks. Like, um, it, and it shows, by the way, in his, in his scholarship. Like, I love him, and he's taught me a lot about the Bible. Um, uh, but, but it, it shows, like, and one of the, one of the big things that, that we get from that is that there's this faddishness in, in the, uh, in academia that, that having to teach catechism to five-year-olds and, and having to teach you adult Sunday school class yeah. and having to sleep with the sheep inoculates yeah. you from. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, I, I said that, uh, I mean, um, well, I've said, right. I've said that the most valuable experience I've ever had was, and I've start, finally started doing it again is doing uh nursing home ministry or uh, leading chapels at a nursing home. Like you get, you stop, <laughs> all attempts to be hip die when you're looking into the eyes of saints who are about to who are about to meet their maker and you have to bring a word to them. Absolutely. And it really puts everything into perspective. Well, yeah, and it's it's a um it's better to go to the house of the house of mourning than to the house of uh, of feasting. Mm. Like so that that's in the Bible for a reason. Yeah. And, and that's and that's one of them, right? Is we yeah. we call we call the um, uh, we sometimes call the 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 music selection that we use on Sunday mornings deathbed songs um, mm. because um, wow. we we're 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 kind of of the opinion that if you couldn't sing it on your deathbed, then don't waste our time with it. Um, uh, Sorry. No, no. Uh, yep. <laughs> I I can't hear you right now. Sorry, man. I don't know if you unplugged something or. Did I? Uh... Oh, there you are. Okay. <laughs> um. Yeah. Okay. I I perturbed. I perturbed our connection too, apparently. Oh no, um, not perturbed. Just uh, <laughs> once again, cannot speak freely. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. Uh, um, sorry, <laughs> I didn't. Uh, I didn't. Uh, um, I didn't. I didn't have any idea that we were going to be uh, <laughs> verging on uh, 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 <laughs> uh, verging on these these sorts of uh, territories. But it just it's, it just sort of came up naturally. But but it's true, like. And obviously, this is uh, by this point. It's obvious that this is going to be a series and not a one <laughs> episode. Like well, yeah, because we have, yeah. yeah, we have but, several but think, bullet points. <laughs> yeah, but this is, I think, first step in, in this in de defining the downgrade. Before we get into what is wrong with the evangelical world as a whole, we really do need to start with the pastors in the same way that yeah. Spurgeon did. Now, Spurgeon did where where his his uh. I, I remember reading an article about about the, the downgrade controversy, and he goes after 
um, a, a leader of a seminary, not because he was heretical, but because he entertained and allowed people to share the pulpit with him who were questionably orthodox. Mm-hmm. And, and he would be, he went to pains to emphasize that the pro the problem with this guy was not his own doctrine, but the fact that he did not oppose the false doctrine. Like the, the problem is, is so what you're functionally communicating is that it yeah. doesn't matter. That it, it, and, yeah. and that's what I mean by like getting back to like before it is explicitly denied, it is practically denied. And there's a sense in which we're, we're all running around and I, we've got pastors running around saying, whatever happened to the church? Why isn't the church, the church? Why isn't the church family? Why isn't the church? Uh, sorry. I just say, I say that because that's kind of, that's one of our defining things at our church is like church is family. But you know, you've got like, mm. I, I read a book. I, I had a book sent to me by a friend when the church was family. And I'm not sure that ever existed for one thing, but um, I think the church has always had problems, but people asking like, why, why isn't the church functioning the way the Bible mm-hmm. calls it? Abraham, Abraham, arguably. Yeah, uh, Sorry. but <laughs> but why why doesn't the church function as a family? Why isn't the church functioning according to biblical pres- precedents? Well, how about the fact that pastors are not functioning biblically? Pastors are allowing their job descriptions to be defined world in a worldly manner, and sometimes are boldly running in that direction. And and and, and when they're hiring other pastors, they are not turning up their nose to having very worldly um, job descriptions for them. And I'm even taking that, like the question of a job description that, I mean, d- don't all pastors have the same job description, biblically speaking? Like I get like, may- maybe like you go over here, I go over here sort of thing. But like, again, like it, it all starts with the pulpit the the downgrade starts in the pulpit and and if we're going to if we're going to stop the downgrade the evangelical downgrade and you start with evangelical pastors taking seriously the bible not just from the pulpit but certainly let's start in the pulpit well and i hope i hope and and and, and when I'm feeling particularly white-pilled, I even think. Um, but but I certainly always hope that the last two years can be a wake-up call to the the triviality and lightness with which we have treated the gathering of the body yeah. so that so that when the chips were down we were willing to give it up um and i i hope i i i hope so i when when people ask me and so so um uh for the for those for those who don't know um i'm I'm a I'm a full-time political operative, not not a full-time pastor. Um, um, so uh, 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 so sometimes Christians would ask me, thinking I had my political hat on, my political analyst hat on, would would 
ask me what what I thought the root problem was that that led to all the issues that we were seeing in in Canada uh, during the sickness. Um, and um, and and I always I always answered I always answered the same thing. Uh, we have an unconverted clergy because that's the root problem. We have an unconverted clergy, um, which means that we have a a a trivialized and and self-marginalized community of believers. Um, so, um, so that a community that one of our chief functions is, is supposed to be to, um, to prepare people for death, um, showed just how radically we have not done that that the that the um the specter of a new and well publicized way to die um made um made life itself negotiable um for the sake of for the sake of a few more years of non-death um and uh and so yeah i mean i i hope that i hope that we do think backwards a little bit yeah say say where did we go wrong in teaching people to prepare for death and and um yeah uh and and uh and i think it, it's that we we do not have it in in canada particularly but i i would from from my experiences in the states i would say the same um in in the states it's it's that we uh um the 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 people whose whose job description in as much as they should have one <laughs> is prepare people for death <laughs> um are not themselves prepared for death um and um and so i i uh i do hope that we see a shake up and i i think i will i will point to one one sign that we are is Tim Stevens's church is full. James Coates's yeah. church is full. Still. Yeah. Still. Not just because they're the only ones open. Mm -hmm. They're bursting at the seams. They don't know what to do. <laughs> um, so the the churches that that showed faithfulness people who realized that um because the the stripped down streamlined <laughs> cause no offense yeah um 
approach might might seem like it's working when when someone is deciding what to do with an hour that they're going to spend on Sunday morning. Yeah. Yeah. But 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 if it that question suddenly changes from what am I going to do with this hour or if you go to most good churches 3 hours or or whatever <laughs> on on Sunday morning what am I going to do with this time on Sunday morning? Um, if that question changes to, um, how do I prepare for death? How do I, how do I please Jesus? Yeah. How do I, how do I adorn the gospel of Christ? How do I make Jesus look beautiful? How do I, how do I reach, uh, how do I reach my neighbors and, and and how do I bring the urgency of the gospel to bear with with my with my lost neighbors? If those become the questions, it will be it will be a, a different kind of churches that are the answer to those questions. Yeah. Um, and so that's 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 my that's my hope is that is that we is that we can we can start on an upgrade in the sense of um in the sense of on a gradient moving upwards um yeah from our downgrade by rejecting the triviality that we have that we have accepted and i think there's a reality that needs to be caught, kept in mind spurgeon in his day, yes, he had a very large church. But in the broader Baptist movement, he was hated. Yeah. Uh, because he went after this downgrade. He was hated. And the truth is, the way is narrow that leads to life. The road is narrow that leads to life. That is still true. Many are called, few are chosen. That is still true. That is always true. And the truth is, that's, that's, the, the remnant are called the remnant because most do not follow. And, and that's a, a reality that we have to acknowledge and, and come, come to terms with is that as much as we beg and plead, Often, most will not follow. However, that does not excuse us from begging and pleading. Well, and in fact, one of the one of the reasons out. that we're sh one of the reasons that we that God shows us that 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 we are a, a remnant and that most don't follow is to remind us that ultimately neither do we. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, there is only a righteous remnant yeah. of one. There's a there is a righteous remnant of one who has truly followed all of God's commands, and and um, and seeing uh, sort of no matter how <laughs> no matter how faithful um, uh, 
no matter how faithful you are, you're going to you're going to see apostasy all around you. Yeah. Um, which in part serves the function of reminding you that Jesus sees apostasy all around him. Yeah. That that um, and uh, uh, and that we 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 have to we have to ultimately depend yeah. um, on yeah. a a way so narrow that that it occupied one. Yeah. So ultimately, so so this is this is uh, episode one of the downgrade of the evangelical downgrade <laughs> uh, episodes yes. of the Anarchist Bible Study, and uh, it's good that we started with clergy. Um, but I want to end with because we're the Anarchist Bible Study with a text. Acts 20, uh, which I preached, and uh, I think it's one of the first passages that I memorized in order to preach. Um, and and it's also because it had central, central place in one of the most important books I've ever read, which is The Reformed Pastor by Richard Baxter. I think every pa- everyone should read it. Um, and, and if you're not Reformed in doctrine... Uh, don't be scared by that word. It's talking about the quality of the minister himself, not about the doctrine. It'll have a lot to say to you to us, to you as well. Um, but he centers on that pat on acts 20 verse 18, uh, and 19, I believe. Or no, 2019. Okay. I don't know. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to quote it. You can look it up later. Uh, keep watch over yourselves and over the flock that the Lord has entrusted to you. And that word keep watch is shepherd. Shepherd yourself and the flock. And that's the first step. The first step. Then the other step. And keep watch for wolves without and false teachers within. Four things. Those are the four things. You want a job description for the pastor. First, Keep watch over yourself. It's the first step. Um, there's someone who I think is pretty hit or miss, but when he hits, he hits harder than anyone else. And that's Paul David Tripp. When he misses, he whiffs hard. When he <laughs> hits, he hits hard. In his uh, book, A Dangerous Calling, uh, about the pastorate, he said he says what I think is the most important lesson any pastor can hear. The first person you preach to is yourself. You need to preach your sermon to yourself before you preach it to your flock. You need to sit under your own preaching. Uh, John Piper once said, again, hit and miss, but when he hits, he hits hard. He said he does not live up to his own preaching because if he did, he was preaching too low. Hmm. When I preach, the first thing I preach, I don't preach what I, I don't preach what I practice. I preach to myself first, knowing that I fall short as much as my congregation does. I fall short. And so you need to preach to yourself first. Keep watch over yourself. He said that the problem is that we have an unconverted clergy. I think he's right. So the first thing you should do, if you're offended by what we're saying, if you're a pastor in America in the evangelical church and you're offended by what we're saying, the first thing you need to ask is, am I saved? Am I saved? Pastor, have you ever wept over your own sin? Have you ever uh, fallen on your face in the sight of your own failures and your own inadequacy? Have you ever looked to the cross and seen it as so beautiful that it'll make you weep? 
Have you ever thought of the love of God and, and, and had the, the, the second thought of, but why me? If you've never had these, you need to get yourself on your knees and start begging for God to open that, open your eyes to see it. I think the first problem, uh, I think the, we have lowered the bar for conversion in our church. And I think that has everything to do with the fact that pastors wanted the bar lowered for themselves. We have lowered the bar on what we think conversion is. Well, you prayed a prayer. That's good enough. It's because we've only ever prayed a prayer. So many, so many pastors have only ever prayed a prayer and thought that was good enough. They've never wept over their sin. That's part of repentance. Part of repentance is being cut to the heart. Part of faith is looking on Christ as precious and as glorious and as beautiful being struck by the glory of God in the face of Christ. We've lowered the bar for ourselves. Uh, well, we've lowered the bar for others because we want to lower the bar for ourselves. We need to first think about, are you converted preacher? Second, are you growing in holiness? Are you yourself being sanctified daily? We're not asking for perfection here. The Bible doesn't ask for perfection. The Bible asks for growing in holiness. I saw someone tweet the other day the reason that the that the evangelical church downgrade on the subject of sexuality is happening is because he's because he's like I bet it's because most pastors are watching porn. Most preachers themselves are watching porn, and so they're gonna. So of course they're gonna lower the bar on sexual purity. Are you growing in holiness? That is, do you hate your sin? Are you killing your sin? Be killing sin or it'll be killing you, John Owen said. Be on it. Watch over yourself. Work on your own holiness. Preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the law to yourself in order to convict and convert your own heart. And then watch over your flock. Not CEO them. Watch over them. Like, watch over them. And then you need to be aware of the wolves. See, we, we, we don't want to talk about the wolves. We'd rather stay to the positive. We want to state the positive case, but you know what? That wasn't enough. It's not enough just to state the positive case. We also need to notice the wolves. What is going to, what in this world is coming in and trying to tear apart your flock? You need to be aware of that. Part of shepherding your flock is being aware of who from the outside. We don't want to talk about what's outside. No, no. What, what business do I to do with judging the world? That's not what that verse means. You need to be aware of the wolves who are coming in to tear apart your flock and be so sound in your doctrine that you can see a false teacher when he rises up in your midst. This is the job of pastors. These, these are the four, these jobs are your job and shepherding your flock is about preaching and teaching the word to them. This is what it comes down to, friends. And it, and praying it, with and for them. Yes. Yes. What it all comes down to. And and I'm sure we're going to go deeper into this when we get to the the broader evangelical world when we get past the preachers and start talking about the evangelicals, but the question is, I said it, are you willing to be ruthlessly biblical with your own life? with the life of your church and can you spot worldliness in your church or has it become like water to a fish 
You need to, you need to, uh, not enough preachers are praying, Lord, show me where worldliness exists in my church. We can see it in other churches, but it's so hard to see it in our own lives and our own church that we're not asking the spirit to illuminate our own worldliness. And, you know, I, another podcast I'm going to plug. It's this podcast called Restless. Um, and it is such a fascinating podcast. It is a, a post-mortem of the young restless and reform movement. Oh. Fascinating. Fascinating. Oh. And I started for the first, I'm not updated up to date on it because it's one of those podcasts that you want to start at the beginning and go through. And I haven't sure. caught up yet. And um, one of the insights that they got was the first wave of the, of the uh, basically says new, new Calvinism. The new Calvinism has two waves. The first wave would be like John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul and such. And he said they came out of the fundamentalist movement. They were coming out of the fundamentalist movement and they're discovering the doctrines of grace and doctrines of Calvinism and came out of that. And he said, and so, right. so much of it was in response to that. But they said, as you'd expect, some of the fundamentalist movement clung to them. But then, so where did the second wave of the new Calvinism come out of? It came out of the church growth movement, out of the church marketing movement. And in many ways, they were formed as a contrast to them. And yet, a lot of it stuck. A lot of the church growth movement world stuck and so the new Calvinist movement um, has a lot again like I said there's a lot to be said about the fact that it's like most of us are saying brothers were not professionals but kind of mm. but kind of we need to be ruthlessly biblical with our own lives with our own movement with our own churches be ruthlessly biblical and that's what we do every week on the Anarchist Bible Study. We try to be ruthlessly biblical. Uh, and so we uh, thank you for joining us again this week. And this week twice joining us for, our, for this bonus episode of the Anarchist Bible Study. And uh, um, yeah, once again, if you agree with us or disagree with us, we want to hear both. We want to hear comments, com questions. Uh, pushback um, uh, do it all by either commenting on the video or send an email at anarchistbiblestudy at gmail.com I've got it nailed down so much that it's not even exciting when I get it anymore I I know I'm getting I'm getting progressively more Baptist with my responses the thrill is um, gone <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, so send us an email anarchistbiblestudy at gmail.com leave us a message um, make sure that you subscribe, uh, rate, tell a friend. Um, uh, we've been getting shout. We got a shout out from a, a podcast recently. At least I read. A, I read about. It. I haven't actually listened to the podcast yet. Um, uh, but if you want, if you want to shout us out from your podcast, or hey, if you want to have one of us on your podcast to talk about, um, you know, talk about the sort of things we talk about, we're willing to do that as well. Um, we're terrible at promotion, so if you can promote us, that'd be great. Um, but ultimately, the, the biggest thing is um, be ruthlessly biblical with your own life. Like ask, uh, ask the Spirit to illuminate where you are not 
in line with his word. And, and, and again, I want to point out like the second, uh, the Westminster Confession and the 1689 London Baptist Confession, which follows Westminster Confession. Both of them have this principle. It's not just about the words of Scripture, but it's about, um, it says, everything must be either, either from Scripture or deduced from Scripture. They phrase it differently in both confessions, but largely it comes down to, can it, is it either expressly written or deduced from Scripture? What does that mean? That means that being Good. scriptural, being biblical, is more than just knowing the words. It's learning to think the thoughts of the Bible. And so, be asking the Spirit, where are my, where are my thoughts, not the thoughts of God's Word? Where am I using God's Word to justify what God's Word does not justify? But I'm just using the words of Scripture to do it. You'd be asking these questions and, and be ruthlessly biblical with your own life, with your own politics, with your own everything. And uh, especially if you're not a leader of a church, start with yourself. Start with your own self, with your own life. Um, judging others is an easy way to avoid judging ourselves. Be ruthlessly biblical with yourself and, um, and join us next week when we take Anarchy to Church. Antiochus Bible Study. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. As long as we get this yeah. done, as long as we get this done in two and a quarter hours, I will still have power on the, in this computer. If we're still talking <laughs> in two and a quarter hours, something has gone wrong. <laughs> this is a bonus episode. My goodness. Or, or, or something has gone extremely normally. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh. All right. All right. Let me get my my. Uh, <laughs>